Hello, and welcome to the Other Tradition Podcast, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Thomas and Lex Musta. This is where we revisit our history from the perspective of the Other Tradition, where extensive interracial cooperation has always been the driver of signal improvements in our race relations. We hope this encourages our listeners to reach out multiracially in their own efforts to continue America's storied other tradition. Enjoy. Greetings. I am Lex Musta, a human amity worker, and today's podcast was recorded at the Washington, D.C. Baha'i Center on January 14th, 2018. I was invited to speak about the history of a D.C. community that all began with female multiracial founders 120 years prior. Ten years earlier, while I was researching America's first integrated Baha'i community, I learned that the city of Washington was going to turn the first African-American-owned Baha'i center in America into condominiums. I wanted to do something about it. And as I began studying the building, I learned that from 1903 until 1960, it housed the Washington Conservatory of Music and School of Expression, an institution unique in America for its entrepreneurial success, its promotion of African-American and world music, its employment of married women, and its female leader, Miss Harriet Gibbs Marshall. So now, what could I do to preserve such a building, I thought? Well, I met up with a great scholar, Sarah Schmelenberger, who wrote her dissertation upon Miss Harriet Gibbs Marshall in 2004. Then she helped me formulate an appropriate use for the building. And the previous scholar, the first scholar of Harriet Gibbs Marshall, Dr. Doris Evans McGinty, I reached out to consult with her family as well, in terms of what we should do. And the late Mr. Milton McGinty agreed that I could use the name of his wife, Doris Evans McGinty, in the name of the rededicated building. It was to become the Dr. Doris Evans McGinty National African American Female Art Scholar Retreat. While I was not successful in preventing the building becoming condominiums, I did learn a lot about Miss Harriet Gibbs Marshall. So it gives me great joy to share this talk about her and how she came to help develop the first integrated Baha'i community in America. Enjoy. This year, of course, marks a very special time for the Baha'is around the world. It's the bicentennial of the birth of Baha'u'llah. But for the D.C. community, it also marks our 120th anniversary of being a faith here in Washington, D.C. And that's very significant because it is the first Baha'i community in the southern United States. It is the first Baha'i community in the entire United States that was integrated racially. And of course, today, I want to talk about five women who were responsible for that. And some of their portraits have recently been done by the Baha'i artist, Brother Daniel. And I'm going to be referring to them, and I show them up here above the mantelpiece. But let's start two years before the community began, in 1896. We're in the sleepy town of Princess Anne, Maryland. Was a woman named Charlotte Emily Brittingham Dixon. She was 46 years of age. She'd been a widow now for 20 years, tragically. Her daughters had grown up. She herself was only 16 years old when she saw her brothers and sisters, the neighbors around her who were of African descent, liberated from enslavement. So this is the time period in which Charlotte lived. And she had something remarkable happen to her, to which we can all trace the origin of this community 122 years ago. What happened, in her words, she had what many Christians know as sanctification. 
As you know, Jesus Christ said you're baptized not just by water, but also by fire. And of course, when we look into sanctification, Charlotte Brigham Dixon felt that God was speaking to her with words of fire, visions of fire, and inspiration of fire. For three months, she was overcome with such feelings. And as she emerged from the sanctification, she felt the Bible was open before her. She could understand everything. What an incredible feeling. And plain to her, as the sun is outside, she could see that a manifestation of God was again upon earth. So what would you do as a 46-year-old widow who is a school teacher, whose children have grown in a very Episcopalian town? What would you do if some sanctification like that came to you, if you just imagine her plight? She felt she could share it with nobody in town. So she prayed And you know where God guided her to go to get more information? She was guided to go by herself, by her own prayer, to Chicago. And as Baha'is, we know that just three years prior to that was the first mention of Baha'u'llah in America in Chicago. And that's where she went, guided as she was by God. So Charlotte gets there, and could you put yourself into a city as big as Chicago? Go ahead and find a new manifestation of God in Chicago. (laughs) So a year later, she is no closer to her goal. And she's there going, and her family saying, come home. You've been at this for a year. We appreciate your sanctification. Please come home. (laughs) And she's ready to come home. And she's going to the door, and she stops. And she gets down, head on the ground, arms outstretched. And she says, God, do not let me leave Chicago without meeting you. Nothing happened. Three days later, she's still at it, still on the ground, still praying, do not let me leave Chicago without finding the manifestation. The doorbell rings. Does God ring doorbells? Yep. <laughs> Margaret knows the story. So she's, she's going to the door, she opens it up, and it's not a religious person. It is someone who's doing some kind of sales pitch. But it's a hot day in Chicago. And she says, please come in. It's hot. Let me get you some refreshments. And she decides to tell the woman, I'm here in Chicago looking for God. You just read the doorbell while I was praying here. Do you know something? And this lady happens, well, saying, well, I don't know anything. But D.L. Moody, the most famous evangelist in all of America in 1896... Certainly he would know if there's a new manifestation of God in town. (laughs) He knows everything about Christianity. And he works with Miss Reed with the poor in town. Can I have the address? Charlotte races over to Miss Reed's house. You know, Miss Reed, Miss Reed, I need to speak with D.L. Moody. No answer. She's not home. She's out working with the poor. Next day. But as you're starting to learn a little bit about Charlotte's character, She doesn't just give up because Miss Reed's not there. So a third day. At this point, the doctor upstairs has had enough with his lady knocking on the door every day. So she reaches her head out the window, the second floor window, if you can imagine, a street in Chicago, busy city. Young woman, well, not a young woman, woman, what's what's the matter? Well, I'm looking at uh, Miss Reed because I'm trying to find the manifestation of God for earth. And the woman says, women, 
You are not here to meet Ms. Reed. God has sent you here. You are here to meet, what was the exact word she used? Woman, God sent you here. You are not seeking Miss Reed. We have the greatest message for you since Christ. This woman upstairs had just become a Baha'i the prior month. So she called her upstairs. They're crying together and they're sharing their stories and says, well, I just became a Baha'i. I don't know all the details. Please go. A new class is starting up. Class of 50 individuals. Charlotte's in the class and she's learning the faith and she adopts it. And if anyone knows the series of the way, the manner in which Kirella taught the faith, he would go through a series of 13 steps. And at the very end, he would say, Allahabha. And he would teach you the secret Baha'i word. We now, Baha'is now don't te- treat that as a secret word. We actually use it as a greeting. But at the time, it's like you're hearing the word of God re-revealed on earth. And Charlotte was completely taken. She could now f- answer her family's quest, return home. She teaches the entire family the Baha'i faith. The first Baha'i in the entire southern United States. The first family of Baha'is in the southern United States. They all adopt the faith. And just to give you a couple examples of what that family did right away, they founded the community in Baltimore. They founded the community in Philadelphia. They founded this community. But Isabella Brittingham, who's a sister-in-law, she wrote a book which kind of encapsulated those teachings. She calls it The Revelation of Baha'u'llah in a sequence of four lessons. So you kind of see, if you read that book, you're going to really get a picture of what Charlotte experienced. Because it was written by her sister-in-law, you know, and it's kind of a series of lessons. You know, he had 13, she had four. But she wrote it, the first accurate English language history of the Baha'i faith, of Baha'u'llah in the West. And Abdu'l-Baha was so happy with Isabella, she became, he said, your services will be written in the pages of the world in glorified writing, which shall be read by all people. So I encourage you all to consider getting a copy of her book, because that book was reprinted from 1904 through 1920. It was one of the main ways in which Baha'is taught. It's very heavy on biblical prophecy fulfillment. Charlotte's now got this family that's going off doing great things. She is doing great things. So she comes to D.C., And then, at that time, the appointed leader of the Baha'i faith was the son of the prophet founder, Abdu'l-Baha. And Abdu'l-Baha said to her, because it's Washington, I can't let you just teach as you would in Chicago or anywhere else. I need you to teach the highest level of society, because in a way, this is the capital of the world in some ways. It has to be taught in a very careful manner to give the right impression to the world. So, with that guidance... Louis Gregory, pictured here, who wrote a history of the early D.C. Baha'i community, said that one of the first things Charlotte did is had a gathering of like 50 congressmen and judges. And, and uh, one legacy I know from that meeting is her daughter, Louise Boyle, uh, in 1921, when the Baha'i community was trying to outreach to very prominent Americans to work on the racial issue. She was the one who brought Senator Clapp in, the most senior government official who got involved in that race amity conference we organized. So that might be the kind of fruit from this first meeting. So a year later, she had taught, now seven individuals were Baha'i in this community. The community had begun. Well, many Baha'is were starting to go, some of the rich ones like Charlotte, were starting to go to the Holy Land and meet Abdul Baha himself. So she, she wants to go. So she said good farewell to her seven friends, and she went with her daughter to the Holy Land. And what's so special about this trip is it gives us a sense of how did Charlotte teach? How is the manner 
that Charlotte taught these seven individuals. As we think about these five great women, I'm going to kind of call out to you their special manners as you put yourself in their place. So she'd gone to see Abdu'l-Bahá. She's now coming back on her way back to America to you know, share. She's intoxicated with the faith. And she stops at a hotel at the bottom of the Spanish Steps in Italy. Has anyone been to uh, Rome, Spanish Steps? Okay, so picture there, you know, the beautiful French church is on top, and they got the Spanish Steps and this beautiful plaza. And she's staying at what's called a pension, but it had an elevator. So it must have been very exclusive kind of place to have an elevator in that time. And here is an account from across the tea room of someone watching her. So you can picture now Charlotte sitting there with her daughter, just coming back from meeting Abdu'l-Bahá. And this woman wrote, Across the long table in the dining room, I saw them. They seemed to have a radiance and happiness different from others. And I could hardly take my eyes from them. A few days later, as I sat in the parlor, I overheard the mother in a conversation with a lady who had heard in Paris of the Baha'i message from Mr. Mason Remy. Little did I comprehend what it was they were talking about, but my heart was stirred. And the realization came to me that whatever they're talking about, it's the truth. <laughs> so what did this woman do? Let me first tell you, who is this woman who's overhearing them? Uh, the American conquest of Hawaii began in 1834 with two families. One of the families was the Alexander family. This is the granddaughter of one of those first uh, Christians who went over to Hawaii and who eventually took over and ruled Hawaii. And so her and her friends were on their first trip from Hawaii. So imagine she was born in Hawaii, never knew America, and she's on her first trip around the world. And so this lady from the leading family of Hawaii is overhearing this. And so she rushes in the elevator after Charlotte, confronts her in the elevator, and says, you hide a secret, share it with me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as was the time, as you start to read these early writings, they don't just tell things outright. They don't just say, yes, Baha'u'llah's come, and so on. So, as she started to handwrite, of course, there was not printing press. When you go up in the Baha'i archives here, and all these early believers, they all had handwritten books. Like, it was like your treasure trove of those Baha'i writings that you had access to. Oh, can I copy yours? You know, so Charlotte, in her beautiful handwriting as a school teacher and so on, must have been very well written, wrote out this prayer for her. Didn't tell her the whole story. So then Agnes Alexander writes what her reaction to this was. The prayer seemed to answer all the longings of my heart. After that, we met for three successive evenings. So three more evenings without mentioning the Baha'i faith. The third evening, after meeting with Miss Dixon, I retired to my room. Sleep did not come. That night, November 26, 1900, an overwhelming realization came to me, which was neither a dream nor a vision that Christ had come to earth. So this is the manner when Charlotte taught. And then when she came down, she said, okay, well, where are you going to be? Oh, you're going to Paris next? Okay, go to Paris. And May Bowles is there. And May Bowles is in Paris, who was this young woman whose many family members had just died. She was very tragically distraught. And a group of American pilgrims had just passed through Paris, one of which is friends with her. Phoebe Hurst, and said, come with us. And she was actually taught the faith by Abdu'l-Bahá. So here's an individual not taught by Charlotte or Corellia, but taught by Abdu'l-Bahá herself. So she, when, when, May Alexander, when Agnes Alexander met her, she said, this lady is an angel of light filled with a consuming love, which the master said was divine. So later on, she must have talked to the master about this and said that angel of light was, uh, was divine, was divine light she was seeing. 
So this amazing gathering cemented the faith for Agnes Alexander. But the reason I bring up this Paris gathering is not only did Charlotte send somebody there, this is the first Baha'i community in all of Europe, by the way, this little Paris group. But that person they talked about in that conversation, Charles Mason Remy, he is a very wealthy Navy family here in D.C. So he comes back from this, uh, uh, from this Paris group. We have here Laura Barney. Which one? The one on the rightmost side. Okay. Laura Barney. She comes back from Paris. Phoebe Hurst herself, you today may have read the magazine Cosmopolitan, the Hearst Empire. She's from that empire. She came back. The first African-American Baha'i, Robert Turner, came back. So you got this whole group of people here. And now Abdu'l-Baha says, we have now taught to that first families of D.C. So now go ahead and the doors are open to teach everyone. Okay, so the year is like 1900, 1901. But Laura Barney is very, a very special family. Uh, her her grandfather ran a great opera house in New York that was very famous for many years. Her mother, Alice Pike Barney. I don't know if you've ever been to the mall in D.C. There's a theater right beside the George Washington Monument that was founded by her mother, that open-air theater there. You can rent it for 72 bucks. And so what happened here, she goes, you know what? I want to do a service to the faith, and I'm going to invite Mirza Abu Fazal, the foremost Baha'i scholar in the whole world, to live here in D.C. and to write us a Baha'i book. And Abdu'l-Baha approved of this. This book here was created in D.C. The reason Mirza Abdul Fazal was here was because she paid for him to be here, right where the Mayflower Hotel is now. The building has since been torn down. And this is the book. You can read yet a second book that has come from this city, from Charlotte, from this whole energy here. And so this book, Baha'i Proofs, again, it's a very biblical-based kind of Baha'i uh, scholarship proof to kind of show how the faith was taught at the time. You now have this amazing resource, direct teachings. He was a very prominent mullah who converted to the Baha'i faith. You know, so you're really getting a profound understanding of Islam, of the Baha'i faith. And people started to go to hear him in between his writing times. And he would insist on serving tea. The lady you see at far left, Pauline Hennen, would go to his classes in 1902, would leave her baby carriage on Connecticut Avenue, leave the baby there on Connecticut Avenue, <laughs> And go upstairs. Now, Mirza is a very holy man. And he had an assistant, Ali Hulikan, who was a little bit less patient. So as Pauline comes to these classes, it's like maybe the sixth time, seventh time, eighth time, ninth time. Ali Hulikan is getting a little frustrated because she never says anything. And she's a little woman. So he's getting a little frustrated. And he says... Does this little girl understand what we're talking about? Is she really interested? And Mirza says, well, she keeps coming back. She must be interested. Oh, that wasn't good enough for him. So he had to confront her and said at the next time, are you satisfied with these explanations? What more answers do you need? So he suddenly beamed at him. How could there be anything more wonderful than this great faith? After you received this, what else in the world could you wish to possess? So she then became a Baha'i, and she began teaching her family. Her, uh, her father was the architect of the beautiful Lutheran church in town here with a big Lutheran statue. Uh, her family was very active in that Lutheran church, but her mother and her sisters all became Baha'i. But at that same time, I just want to go back one step. Remember Agnes Alexander? <laughs> 
In the meantime, while we've been getting Mirza here and everything, she taught herself Esperanto because Abdul Baha said, yeah, probably a good thing to have one language the whole world can speak with. And using Esperanto, she taught the faith first person in China, Japan, Korea, and then she went back to her native Hawaii and taught there. So out of that one moment, all those places were taught the faith. And now Laura doesn't stop going back to the Holy Land. She loves going back there because she has the means, so she goes back to see Abdul Baha all the time. In this edition of a book she wrote, she edited, called Some Answered Question, there's a picture of a table. And an eyewitness to the, to the meeting said Abdul Baha would sit here at the end and she would sit on the right-hand side. And she would an- ask a series of questions to which he would answer. And this book is unique in religious history because here you have an appointed successor to the leader of a, of a major world religion being asked questions, giving answers, and having it all authenticated. All these answers were reviewed she taught herself Persian. And for all this service, Abdu Baha gave her a title. Her title is Amatul Baha. And Abdu Baha said this about her title. This title is a crown of munificence upon thy head, the gems and pearls of which crown will scintillate forevermore. Consider the succeeding ages and thou wilt know what a gift this is. So this lady here we can refer to as Amatul Baha, who is the author of, the editor of Some Answered Questions, and of course a critical uh, individual in the, in the whole faith. She hosted Abdul Baha in 1912 in Paris. That building is now owned by the Baha'is. And of course here in D.C. they founded the Studio House, which has also hosted Abdul Baha and was used for Baha'i meetings for many, many years. So she's critical to our community's advancement. But... As I said, she enabled Pauline Hannon to embrace the faith. Pauline Hannon lived at 8th and O, where the convention center is today. If you've ever been to the D.C. convention center, that's where she lived. It's now been torn down. Pauline was unique in that she's coming to America as a German, born in Germany, with her sisters and mother. And so that enabled her to kind of look at things a little differently. And she looked at the writings, and she was really struck when, uh, when uh, the, the hidden word from Baha'u'llah, which said, uh, eat with the same mouth, walk with the same feet, this struck her. You know, the thing, I should be teaching also the African Americans, and her family did. They did an incredible thing. And the question is, how did they go about this? How, what was the method by which they became the first family to actively begin teaching African Americans? And so, we get a sense of it from two perspectives. One is, after the fact, after she'd finished the successful teaching effort and many other services of faith, Abdu Baha provided a unique <laughs> distinction for her gravesite and that of her family, and that's a visitation tablet, which is unique in, the, in American history. No other Baha'i has a visitation tablet for their gravesite as theirs, though. And Abdu Baha calls out two things in this visitation tablet about the family. She said, Thou didst consecrate the days of thy existence to the service of his highness, the Clement, and spent the time in the diffusion of the fragrances of the paradise of Abha. There are many souls and perfumed and many spirits illumined through thy services. Thou didst bestow a portion of the heavenly food to those who are deprived. Thou didst even train and educate thy daughters, each of whom has arisen to serve the kingdom like unto thee and engaged in the guidance of the souls. In the assembly of wisdom, they are lighted candles." They sacrifice their lives in the path of God. They are gardened in the orchid and irrigating thy rose garden. This is a family that is fully into sharing the faith. 
And two years after she began teaching the faith to African Americans, Louis Gregory over here wrote down the method she used. And I think it's kind of instructive if you think about Pauline. He said, first of all, I was unusually received with an unusually cordial welcome. She told me that I would hear something very wonderful, though difficult. It would afford me an opportunity similar to that which would have been mine if I had lived on earth as a contemporary of Jesus Christ. She kindly gave me three pieces of Baha'i literature, the hidden words, which I just mentioned about, and what was known as the Dealey Book. The Dealey Book you can find online. It's called The Dawn of Knowledge and the Most Great Peace by Paul Kingston Dealey. That was another piece of literature that was given out, and a small tract written by Charles Mason Remy. Miss Hennon invited me to another meeting. This time it was held at the home of other African-Americans. Miss Hannon was a teacher, and her loving service was impressive. She then invited me to come to her home, where I would meet either herself or her husband for further teaching. Though the very un- through the very unusual kindness of these dear friends, my mental veils were cleared away, and the light of assurance mercifully appeared within when they had taught me the greatest name and how to pray. So this gives us a small image of how Pauline <clears throat> made that teaching. Now, Going back to Charlotte for one moment, Charlotte Brittingham Dixon, who founded the community, on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of Abdu'l-Bahá's visit to this town, her grandchildren came, Roger and Patton Boyle. And they told me something that was really interesting, that since Dr. King's holiday is coming up, I just want to mention, share this, that Charlotte Brittingham Dixon's um, granddaughter-in-law was written to by Dr. King from the Birmingham jail. And it's such a beautiful writing from Dr. King, and it says a lot about some of the things that people were learning through the spirit of Baha'u'llah, like Pauline teaching African-Americans, like Charlotte Brigham Dixon's granddaughter being a friend of Dr. King's. Here's what Dr. King wrote. Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race, and still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. I am thankful, however that some of our white brothers in the South have grasped the meaning of the social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, such as Sarah Patton Boyle, have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. That's the letter from Birmingham Jail, which is quite famous. So we now have a woman and a family who's going to commit themselves to this teaching. And the way uh, Pauline would describe it, her mother, Amelie, who received that visitation tablet, would go constantly, and she would try to organize all these meetings, you know, because they have meetings at their houses, they have meetings at their house. And who was the first person to respond? Many people have referred to her as a seamstress. I would encourage you never to do that again. Because she comes from the most prominent African-American family in D.C. So calling her a seamstress seems to be Uh, reference to how difficult those times were for people of African descent. 
but she, her husband is the richest family in North Carolina. They're the only family in North Carolina of African descent that has a house museum in their honor, the Pope family. Her wedding to Mr. Pope was a cause of great comment in the newspapers of North Carolina. And he was there, a manager of an African Methodist Episcopal church in Rich Square, North Carolina, Willow Oak AME Church. And he was a professor there, and he, was, he would often give talks to 3,000 people. For instance, he gave a talk to 3,000 people about the progress and achievements of the Negro race. He ran a school there for African-American youth. So this is the kind of high-level individual Pocahontas Pope was. Her doings at that AMA teach were often comment for newspaper. You know, she organized Easter parades. She organized this. Similarly, when she came to D.C. and her husband became Reverend John Pope, so now it's the wife of a reverend, she had a similarly high role. She would organize. You can see in the, in, the, in the Washington Bee, you can find references to her organizing events. And in Washington Bee, here's what they say about Miss Pocahontas Pope prior to her becoming a Baha'i. Even among our race, the woman is intensely religious. Can you imagine that? The, the, the paper, the largest circulation paper in town, says this about this woman. This is who Pauline talked. Saying she's a seamstress is not sufficient and doesn't do justice to who was taught and who's the first Baha'i, especially as the Baha'is of this community are considering putting up her first gravestone on her, on her grave here in D.C., which is absolutely fantastic. New Harmony Cemetery. Now, something else that's interesting about her is that Miss Pocahontas Pope came from an incredible family in many respects. Because now we just see, see, how did Pocahontas Pope, now that she's a Baha'i, play a key role in creating this beautiful integrated community? Well, uh, Lizzie Pope is a relative of Coralie Cook. So uh, her husband, Pocahontas Pope's husband, has a cousin who's a descendant of the Monticello family of the Hemings. And Coralie Cook is the great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Hemings. Many of you know uh, Sally Hemings, but Sally Hemings' mother, Elizabeth Hemings, and she's the first of all the Hemings descendants to get a college degree. She was a professor at Howard, and she was married to another professor. So they all became Baha'i in 1910. And she founded the National Association of Colored Women, and she became a Baha'i in 1910. So this is the kind of circle of people being taught by Pocahontas Pope at her house. And that brings us to the woman in the middle of that mantelpiece, Miss Harriet Gibbs Marshall. She would participate in these talks that were given um, in the community, and she would know Mrs. Cook, and of course she would know Pocahontas Pope. Who is she? Who is Harriet Gibbs Marshall? Well, I'm gonna, to tell that story, I have to tell you how she ended up being born in Victoria, Canada. Her father, Milford Gibbs, was a leading abolitionist. He toured the country one whole year with Frederick Douglass, for instance. When the gold rush happened, he was working on the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia with William Still. But when the gold rush happened, he decided to go out to California. He also wanted to get money. He was a brilliant businessman. And so he's making money in California, but the European Americans didn't want to share the money with African Americans in California. So do you know there was a law in 1858 that African Americans had to wear a badge on their clothes in California? I can't find one mention of it on the internet, actually. But her father wouldn't stand for that. So her and him and 800 others left America. And they went to Victoria, Canada. 
and they formed a majority up there. They, he founded the first non-government-owned you know, goods store in Victoria. Uh, he got elected to government there. He formed uh, a, a volunteer militia um, called the Victoria Pioneer Rifle Corps because the U.S. was disputing an island nearby. So they actually formed a militia to fight them. So this is a man of great capacity. And after the Civil War was won for liberation, he moved back and became the first elected municipal judge in America. And with that money, when her mother died, to, recon to reconcile her grief, he bought her 904 T Street Northwest, where she founded a musical school. She herself is the first graduate of the Oberlin School of Music, so this is a very distinguished woman. She worked here in the D.C. public school system introducing African-American music. And she was the most successful female entrepreneur in D.C. She was willing to overlook the social moray at the time, which says you don't employ married women. And she employed married women like Mrs. Cook because it was considered unvirtuous for a married woman to work in those times. So she was a feminist. She is a successful businesswoman. And she adopted the Baha'i faith and she gave her center, her school of music, as a Baha'i center, the first African-American-owned Baha'i center in America, thanks to Ms. Harriet Gibbs Marshall. And she, just like the others, just like we had uh, Ms. Agnes Alexander, who took the faith to Asia, Pauline's sisters took the faith to Rhodesia and South Africa. <coughs> Harriet Gibbs Marshall is the first I know of African-American Baha'i pioneer of the faith. She took the faith to Haiti. And I have here a letter written by Hannah the Cause, Louis George Gregory, to Miss Gibbs Marshall, written in 1937, thanking her for that pioneering. And, he, and Louis Gregory wrote, you are much loved among them, meaning amongst the Haitians, for the constructive services you have rendered them. Welcome to Haiti, said one of the officials, upon knowing that I had a letter of introduction from you. The Baha'i seed sown by you is also having effect. So you should be happy and thankful to the Lord of might, Baha'u'llah, that he have served the establishment of his kingdom on earth. With that, I wish to close and thank these wonderful five women for giving us this wonderful integrated community we all know and love today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this Other Tradition podcast. It is brought to you by DC Time Travel Tours, where you experience history. <laughs>